you're listening to Market Scale Building Management. I'm your host, Sean Heath, and I'm about to have a conversation with Kale Miller, the Senior Director for Global Corporate Real Estate at Cushman and Wakefield. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you this morning? I am doing quite well. Thank you for asking. So do me a favor. Let's go back a little bit. You walk out of college. You got that nice diploma in your hand. The ink's barely dry on it. Was your plan to do something this massive? The uh, the funny thing about my career trajectory is I had a, a job before any of my friends graduated from college uh, in the spring semester and thought I had the best job in the world. Got into consumer goods sales for a beer company, which brought me to the San Francisco Bay Area. Area, I probably never would have moved here if it wasn't for that job. And subsequently, I learned a lot about the corporate real estate world through uh, being in a sales role locally here in the Bay Area. And when I started to think, you know what, this consumer goods thing isn't for me, um, I started looking around and thinking, what, what should I do? What's my next step? Is it a sales role? Is it a marketing role? My father-in-law said to me, well, why don't you consider real estate? And I said, don't you have to be 40 to do that? <laughs> and he laughed. Uh, the rest is kind of history from there. You don't do things small, that's for sure. Now, but and in saying that, I I I want to clarify, you think big even if your client is a smaller client. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. We my team and and Cushman and Wakefield in general and our occupier services group brings a big scale approach and capability of delivering to even the smallest of companies. So if you're a growing emerging tech company of 20, 30, 40, 50 people, and you have big plans to grow to 500, 1,000, 3,000, 5,000 employees, there's a lot of things you can do and work with individuals like myself in order to kind of avoid the pitfalls of a larger corporation that may not have put things in place early on in their company's history. Uh, And by that, I mean specifically processes that a lot of big corporations would do in order to run a real estate portfolio more efficiently. So essentially, if you have a good planning process and good individuals who can show you the roadmap for success, uh, it can save you a lot of time, money, help you with recruiting and retaining talent within your company as you grow. You know, that's an interesting an interesting concept in, I, I guess the analogy would be, it's very difficult to unboil an egg. Is it is it exponentially more difficult for larger companies to make the changes that they need to make that might be a little easier if they were smaller because of flexibility? That's a, that's a really interesting thought. The The interesting thing about the world that we live in today is there's there's no right answer for anything. Every company has its own DNA and every company has its own uh, kind of what, what makes it tick. So you look at the Amazons of the world, you look at the Googles of the world, you look at the Facebooks of the world, they all have a specific DNA that is was created at the very infancy of the company. And usually you can see that 5, 10, 20 years down the line in some fashion as they continue to grow and scale. Uh, the companies that are the most successful have really good organizational structure and allow for their individual departments to run things the best way possible with great leadership, individuals who are continually striving to learn and to get better at what they do. So specifically in the corporate real estate function, some of the best functioning companies out there allow the corporate real estate head to sit at the table with the C-suite. So they have a place at the table with the CEO, the CFO, the COO, the head of human resources, the head of legal, and they're there at the table quarterly or as needed as the capital project may come up, uh, talking with 
the, the, the board and the C-suite about what the next steps of the company are. What are the end users or the employees of the company concerned about? What's making them productive or not productive? What can they do to change the built environment that they work in? And, and really, that's, that's one of the key critical components to having a good, successful real estate organization. But that starts when the company is small, when they're 20 to 30 people. It can be uh, very important for, for someone in a facilities role, a low-level facilities role, to have that sort of ear of the CEO, if you will. You know, something I've always found really interesting is when a, a company starts small and they they become successful and they grow for whatever reason, they are going to outgrow that building that they're in. What are some of the things you look at to make sure you get started off on the right foot to solving that situation? Yeah, it goes back to the comment I just made about having C-suite alignment. Um, the interesting thing to your point about outgrowing your space, a lot of times that's not... Uh, in relationship to when your lease might actually expire. So you're always constantly dealing with these issues, whether it's a three, five, seven, 10, 15 year lease of having the, the, the physical needs of a company not aligning with lease expiration. So a lot of times you're in the process of trying to figure out, okay, well, we have this capital commitment to this location. How do we then take that and move to a new location without impacting ourselves so tremendously? Uh, with the remaining lease obligation at this other site. So planning in a lot of flexibility within the the scope of what you might be able to project for 36 to 60 months out. And for a lot of companies, that's difficult. Projecting three to five years in advance of, of what the needs might be. So a lot of times you're using a crystal ball, you're using some things that help you get to the point of a decision by integrating as many people as possible up front. So again, going back to the comment that we were just talking about, about having C-suite alignment, if you have the right stakeholders at the beginning involved in committing time, whether it's two or three hours of the CEO's time, that can be almost more impactful than, than anything. Because at that point, you've challenged the, the leadership and the stakeholders uh, early and often to surface their, their needs, their wants, and some of their challenges. And then you can build the plan around that. But if you don't involve those stakeholders early and often, a lot of times what happens is you go out and create a plan. Uh, that plan is uh, exercised in the marketplace. And then all of a sudden, maybe the, the C-suite or the board don't agree with the, the direction that you've taken a real estate transaction. And then as it relates to the, the actual physical needs of the space and, and growing in a marketplace, there's a lot of market fundamentals and dynamics going on. Space is incredibly expensive these days. So it's really important to set the tone early and often with a, a good set of people involved in the decision-making process, a good playbook, if you will, and that helps you take things to the next level. You have a unique perspective that you get to see a very wide panorama of things that are happening in the industry. What trends have you noticed, say, in the last year that you think are probably solid trends moving forward as well? Yeah, one thing that we've seen, not just in the last year, but really in the last five or 10 years, is the density of occupancy in buildings that doesn't necessarily align with the way they were designed if they're not a brand new. Class A office building, as a for instance, that was built in the last couple of years. Um, so ownerships are having to deal with challenges as it relates to building systems, uh, having the right amount of HVAC equipment so that you can cool and heat the space adequately, uh, having the right number of restroom fixture head counts uh, so that you can accommodate the number of people that are physically utilizing the restrooms on a, a floor. Um, all of these little things that people don't necessarily think about, but as companies are constantly striving to spend less dollars on their real estate costs, 
but also trying to cram more and more people into less space, it's, it's a challenge for a lot of these companies. And so some ownerships are taking a proactive approach by committing to build out larger restroom cores or committing to increasing the HVAC systems in a building. And a lot of companies will look for that when they're looking at the marketplace, at the alternatives, and they'll see a building that has better infrastructure as a more valuable proposition to them, all things being equal. What would you say to a small company that finds themselves in a situation where they're just about too big for their space, but they feel like their only option is to reduce the amount of people they are employing versus expanding or creating a different configuration for their company? There's a lot of things you can do in the middle of a lease term that are creative. Um, Some companies will set up a system where you have a non-dedicated workstation. If you get to the the occupancy point that you're talking about, uh, you can position employees that may not come into the office every day as having a flexible workspace. So this is a a key workplace component that we've been seeing over the last five or 10 years. And these types of companies are being smart about how they physically get their environment set up such that their employees are maximizing the occupancy efficiency. So instead of dedicated one-to-one workstations, one workstation for every employee, you're seeing metrics like 1.5. And when you get in in the morning, you may not have a place to set your things that's the same as it was yesterday. So these are the types of things that companies are employing in order to be more efficient about their built environment that doesn't necessarily align with having to relocate uh, before a lease actually expires. You know, in the retail world, we are constantly looking at prices going down. Oh, it's cheaper to buy this. Oh, look how cheap that thing is. So it's inexpensive. But employees are not one of those things. The cost for employees and buildings, recruiting, getting the best talent, those prices just seem to be going up and up. What is one of the things you can do to focus a company's sort of efforts into being more efficient in their role as an employer? That's a really great question. And it's something that a lot of companies struggle to really understand. Uh, One of the things that we like to do is present metrics associated with a particular occupancy situation that may not necessarily be a standard analysis rather than a dollar cost associated with a a move or a location or a lease. uh, It may be that the, the most expensive building in the marketplace creates a functionally more sound relocation alternative. So for example, a lot of these new buildings have much more efficient space. The layouts were designed in order to accommodate more people with less things in the way, if you will. So you start looking at things a little bit more differently. You start looking at cost per headcount, cost per seat, uh, things of this nature. And then the other thing that people don't a lot of times understand is that churn costs money. So churn is the turnover of an employee. When you're looking at Bay Area salaries, especially just as a, for instance, engineering salaries, you look at a starting salary of one hundred fifty dollars to $180,000 for a lot of these individuals coming straight out of college or with limited job experience. However, if you've got a company next door that's willing to pay them $190,000 and give them a little bit of equity, you see a lot of bouncing around to, from company to company. So if you start factoring in these t- sorts of things like churn and costs associated with per seat headcount, versus just sheer dollars out the door, it starts to kind of change and shift the conversation. So maybe if you can create the right business case, you can convince the C-suite to spend a little bit more money on the real estate costs, but reduce your turnover, therefore creating a 
more continuity in the workplace and in the hiring and and retention of these employees. Now, San Francisco is really it's known as the center of the world uh, with venture capitalists and and private equity and things like that. You you guys really sort of run the world, but. At some point, it has to balance out, right? I mean, it's going to have to level off this this density growth and, like you said, the expanding benefits and things. It's going to have to to level out. What do you see happening when we reach that leveling point? Yeah, for for decades, companies have started to look at at having alternative locations, whether it's a secondary headquarters or a a back office function that doesn't necessarily need to be in the most expensive environment. So you've got to your point, the, the brain trust of the United States or of the world, really, with some of the best thought leadership, some of the most incredible venture capital firms investing in, in technology and startups, people come from all over the world to be in the San Francisco Bay Area and in Silicon Valley. It's important to understand that while that's all great, we have very difficult challenges as it relates to developing new places for people to live, schools for them to go to, and having a general cost of living that may not be balanced for the overall uh, household income that exists in the marketplace. While you have a lot of highly paid engineers and other positions, uh, it, it can be challenging for the workforce, the general workforce uh, in the retail sector and other supporting functions that that make day-to-day life exist uh, it, for those folks to live in, and work here and afford to be here. So you start thinking about, okay, I have the al- alternative of opening up a secondary satellite office in Salt Lake City, Phoenix, Nashville. Kansas City, or maybe it's a secondary headquarters like Amazon's in the market for currently today. Amazon is doing one of two things, in my opinion, and we're not working on this specifically. However, there are a lot of other examples of companies that we do work with who are considering alternative locations for a headquarters or for a back office function. And it's a risk mitigation uh, situation if there was to be a natural disaster, if there was to be some sort of um, uh, terrorism there, there is a need to have business continuity in another location. So you start looking at these other markets, and sometimes you can look at labor and analytics and save anywhere from 25 to 35% for hiring someone in Salt Lake City, as a for instance, versus being in the San Francisco Bay Area for the exact same position with the same capabilities, same skill set, same sort of employee. And that person not only has a, a quality of life that doesn't exist necessarily here in the Bay Area, but... They also have a, a, a different connection to the company. So you see this a lot in, in the tech world, but also throughout general businesses. Um, law firms started moving a lot of their back office functions to the Midwest about five or 10 years ago when they realized we don't need to have these accountants sitting here in downtown San Francisco. And as real estate costs have continued to get more expensive, you've seen this migration to less expensive secondary and tertiary alternatives. So it's really become less about where you are and more about what you can do where you are. I think you're absolutely correct. And technology has continued to make that easier and easier. You can pretty much work from anywhere in the world. Uh, in my role, I have a function where I'm, I'm hyper-local in the San Francisco marketplace, but I also am advising clients on their global portfolios. So occasionally that will take me to Asia Pacific, to Europe, to South America, when you're dealing with their challenges in region or on a project-specific basis. And no matter where I am in the world, The internet works, my phone works, and barring a 2 a.m. phone call in the middle of the night, you can get work done from just about anywhere these days. So the same holds true to having an office space in a a secondary or tertiary alternative location. Uh, These companies 
want to have a physical presence because of all the functions or functional challenges and needs of having people come together to work together to exchange ideas and to, to physically be in an environment. But that doesn't preclude people from working anywhere in the world these days. We mentioned Google. And so as the final question for today, I want to give you the choice of the game room. You're designing a campus for a company and you get to design the game room. Tell me three things that are your go-to must-haves for this game room that you're designing. Yeah, this is a tough question. Uh, ping pong's so noisy, but I feel like it's a fun way to get your blood going. That's a very popular one in the, the workplace. I think I would want one of those. Um, a classic Nintendo. I was uh, born in 1981, so I think I got my first Nintendo when I was seven years old, and and it's always stuck with me. I still own it to this day, so if I could have one of those, that would be phenomenal. And then lastly, I think it'd be a pinball machine. You don't see those too often, but pinball machines are kind of a fun, nostalgic game of the 80s and 90s as well. All right, so when you get that room finished, you just send me a note, and, and I'll head out there, and, and I'll take you on in some uh, Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers 1, 2, and 3 are all phenomenal classics. Sounds like a weekend gaming marathon to me. <laughs> Today, I've had the pleasure of speaking with Kale Miller, the Senior Director for Global Corporate Real Estate at Cushman and Wakefield. Kale, thanks so much for taking the time, and I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.